Boy, it is good to see everybody. That was a dynamite worship service. Yes, that was super. My goodness, I'm used to drummers being old guys with tattoos, you know? Not 13-year-old girls in cowboy boots. So, oh my goodness, she left. I'm going to try to insult her. But uh, she took off. But they'll be here second service, right? Um, it is, uh, you know, I was planning to come to Douglas anyway when uh, our area director, Stan Reeve, called me and asked me if I'd come up and fill the pulpit. So I just changed my uh, trip from uh, Monday to Saturday. And uh, uh, my wife, who will be here for second service, um, she, well, listening to me once is, you know, enough for her. <laughs> I mean, it's all she can stand. Um, she will, uh, she'll be here, but I was going to come up anyway. I have driven by this building a hundred times. No, not a hundred, twenty. Uh, so, but I've never been in it. But I've been up here many, many times. I am from Wyoming. I'm from here, yeah. Uh, I grew up here. Um, I attended the university. Uh, I graduated from the University of Wyoming in 1969. Um, my first memory of being in Douglas was in 1964 when I went to wonderful Wyoming Boys State. Do they still have that? Yes. Do they still do that? Well, I was, uh, I won the, uh, the right to uh, be the Boys State representative for my high school. And it was a prestigious honor. Uh, there were four boys in my high school. And... <clears throat> I beat out those other three guys. Uh, I attended Carpenter, Wyoming High School. Anybody here know where Carpenter is? Yeah, okay, yes. All right, now it's consolidated with Burns now. But we were the Mighty Coyotes. Uh, somebody from New York asked me that yesterday. It's one of my security questions. What was your high school mascot? It was a coyote. Yes, uh, I remember that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've lived, uh, I lived here for the first 20-something years of my life. The rest of my life, except for six years in California, I've lived in Colorado, where I've been a college professor. Uh, so I taught at the University of Colorado Boulder for 25 years. Uh, and then for the last 13 years, I've been at Colorado Christian University. Uh, but during all that time, I've also been a pastor. So I've pastored uh, for all but about two of the last 50 years. So, yeah, I've done, done a lot of this uh, as well. And uh, now I am uh, semi-retired, and I'm doing some pulpit supply, and I'm just really, really glad to be with you guys. Anybody in here know Bill Stewart? Any of you know Bill Stewart? Uh, he was my high school biology teacher. And I know he taught ag here forever, right? Would somebody call him and tell him to be here for the second service? Would somebody do that? Who would do it? More than one of you would be good. Any of you know his phone number? You know his phone number? Yeah, check it out. Check and see. Yeah, go back and look and see if you've got it. Because, yeah, Bill and Don Alita, uh, know him very well. Uh, he was my uh, high school biology teacher. And um, I don't know he was really all that good, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I sure didn't enjoy him. And I saw him at a reunion about maybe 20 years ago, something like that. But I haven't seen him since. But uh, I talked to a guy. I was here in, in June. I like to drive through the Laramie Range in the summertime. And uh, I saw a guy, and I talked to him for a little while. And he said that Bill Stewart was still alive. 
Uh, and yeah, amen. Well, you got to be really old. Um, I turned seventy-three yesterday. So I know, I know, I look, I don't look a day short of eighty. Um, by the way, back to the worship service for a minute. How many of you are about my age or older? How many of you in here? Just go ahead and admit it. It's all right. I just did. No, you liar. Um, okay. I. Yeah, okay, you're closing. Well, you'll ca- you won't catch me. That's just not how it works. Um, how many of you can remember when they first brought drums into the church? Can you remember that? Now, wasn't that a hard adjustment, kind of? Now, I know drums are in the Bible and all that, but this is a Baptist church, two Bs. And I've been a Baptist my whole life. Uh, I grew up at Grace Baptist Laramie. Yeah, a church in the same denominational group as First Baptist Douglas. Um, Well, so anyway, but it's kind of a neat touch, isn't it? Now, I noticed that just to please a number of us, you keep the drummer kind of in a cage there. It's a glass cage, just to be on the the safe side. But, uh, yeah. I like to come just a tad bit late when I'm speaking because that means whoever has to take my place is really nervous and very glad to see me. So was it you, Jack? Were you on? Oh, I probably went, yeah. It probably have been you. There's nobody in this world who is happier to see me than Jack this morning. Oh, yeah. says, oh yes, hallelujah. You're the one. He immediately picked up his phone and called the pastor and said, he's here. <laughs> he's here. All right, so I am here. Take your Bibles, please. And turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. And I want to preach today on a text. I, you know what happened. I walked out of my... I, I live in Arvada, Colorado. And I left yesterday, and I walked out without my sermon notes. So last night, I had to just write a kind of a brief outline of them on this sheet of paper. There they are. Now, that's a very, very short, short outline. What's your name, son? Keenan. Keenan? Yeah. Keenan, just because this is a short outline does not mean it will be a short sermon. <laughs> I don't want to disappoint you, buddy. But, you know, I know. Don't, 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 I just don't want you to get your hopes up. Uh, because I can still fill in a lot of blanks. Um, so I just, yeah, I just want a, a word of the wise. Jack, what time do I, am I, am I it, am I at 10 o'clock, do you do anything else after me? No, we'll start the second service at 10.30. Okay, so who, who closes the service? We didn't even talk about that. Of course, I was late, as you know. Um, the worship team will come on when you're done. Oh, the worship team, so you got another song, worship team. Okay, well, that's super. Uh, boy, I love that song, My Redeemer Lives. I remember the first time I heard that song, about 20 years ago, I was crossing the Canadian Rockies. My wife was saying, hey, there's this new group from Australia uh, that have this really remarkable worship move, uh, music. Uh, and, um, you know, I want you to listen to it. And the first song I listened to was People Like Us. And then the second one was My Redeemer Lives. Uh, Oh, they're just amazing. I thought they were an amazing group. Uh, One of their most famous songs is Shout to the Lord. You've probably heard that one. Uh, And Mighty to Save is uh, one of their more recent ones. And they're really, really good. 
and I have a, uh, I have great appreciation for them. Um, but I, uh, I remember that was the first time I, I had heard uh, any of their music, and uh, I rejoice with it. Okay, Second Kings chapter six. We're going to do verses eight to seventeen. This is a five-point message. I broke them with tradition, normally three points. Does your pastor normally preach three-point sermons? Is that what they are? Does he break from that at all? Well, you need to call him out if he does. Uh, But I'm an old guy, and I can do this. Uh, I have a five-point message, and it really isn't a five-point message. What I'm going to do is kind of a reading commentary on this passage. because, And I just was doing this passage in my devotionals a few weeks ago, and I thought, this is a fabulously appropriate passage for right now. Uh, and I, so I'd like to, I, I'd like to use it. Um, but anyway, I'm good, like I say, I'm going to have five points, and I'll tell you what they are as we go through. So, Keenan, you can remember my outline. Uh, and uh, are, are you a sister? Okay. After the service, you need to quiz him on this, which means you need to pay attention. So, all right, what's your name? Natalie. Natalie. All right, Natalie. Keenan, does Natalie mean to you? I thought so, yeah, I thought so. Yeah, all right. uh, see, I know all about that. I have nine children. Yeah, I have nine children. Uh, I have three birth sons, three birth daughters, and three adopted sons. Sweet. My adopted sons are black, cool. and they're massive. They are huge human beings. Um, so it's kind of fun. In fact, one was offered a scholarship to the University of Wyoming nice. uh, to play football. Uh, yeah, I went out for football when I was at Wyoming, but they said they already had one. It's <laughs> a little bit of humor. I don't know if you picked that up or not. Um, you, you got that? <laughs> Keenan almost shortened it. Um, all right. Are you really? Okay, well, you'd had a chance to, to see him then, uh, but he went somewhere else. All right. This is... An account, an ongoing account, as is always in the book of Kings. Once again, Israel is at war with someone. So let's pick it up in verse 8. Remember, we just had the famous floating axe head incident in the passage, in the paragraph right before this. All right, verse 8. I'm going to read verses 8 to 12, uh, and this will be point 1. Now, the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Which will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. All right, now I want to talk about this first paragraph, and I've just labeled this, uh, these five verses the king's problem. The, king, the king's problem. Now, this is the king of Syria. His name is Ben-Hadad. His father, Ben-Hadad I, battled Ahab uh, back in 1 Kings 22. I, and... One of the things that you see when you read history, I, by the way, I, I, as an academician, I'm a professional historian. That's what my Ph.D. is in. I have a Ph.D. in history. And, um, and I love studying history. 
but one of the things you see in history is history is never ending. Crisis, catastrophe, war, pestilence. And people talk as though this COVID thing is something new. That's ridiculous. And now I know some people have died from it, and that's a terrible tragedy. But relatively speaking, proportionally, it's a nothing burger. I mean, I'm just sorry. 102 years ago, uh, some of you may remember that. My students think I do. Um, we have what was called Spanish influenza. Did any of you ever hear about that growing up? I did. Okay, the Spanish influenza. The Spanish influenza killed proportionately about 15 times more Americans than COVID has. It killed 50 million people worldwide. It killed 700,000 Americans. In 1920, America's population was about one-third of what it is right now. And what's COVID killed? 130, something like that. And that's tragic. I'm not minimizing that. It's tragic. But proportionately, uh, the Spanish influenza, Spanish, Spanish flu killed far more people than World War I did. Oh, far more. So it was a huge, huge uh, pestilence. To say nothing of the greatest environmental catastrophe of all time, the Black Death, 1348 and after in Europe, which killed about a third of the European population. They're not sure exactly how many, but it would be the equivalent of killing 100 million Americans. Now that's a catastrophe. I have students tell me, our environment is killing us. No, it isn't. Never in history have fewer people been killed by the environment than right now. Never in history. Your chances of dying of environmental causes are nearly zero. It's almost impossible because we've made the world safe from environmental causes. Now, occasionally, I have asked my students, what's the big killer in the environment? And they'll say, um, lightning strikes. Well, that's pretty rare, isn't it? Uh, land, uh, snow slides down in Colorado, that's a big deal. I had a student killed in an avalanche. Uh, so it does happen. But what's been the big killer in the environment? Um, it's been little bugs, little critters. Ticks. They've been the big killers. Well, yes, ticks, especially in the Black Death, they played a role. But little bugs like smallpox. Smallpox is the greatest mass murderer of all time. So there's been all kinds of crisis and pestilence down through history. And once again, you've got Israel. By the way, I read an article in Spectator. It's an online British publication that said, Syria continues to be a nightmare. Now, this is 2,800 years after these events. Syria continues to be a nightmare. Syria has always been a nightmare. And my guess is it always will be. But nothing's changed in 2,800 years. So the king has a huge problem. Now, what's his problem? He has a bigger army than the king of Israel. Remember... Uh, uh, Israel's now two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. I don't know if you've studied your Old Testament history or not, but Israel's the northern kingdom. Uh, and it's, by the way, it's about to be done in. But anyway, it still exists in 800 BC. And the king of Syria is attacking it. And so he has his spies scout out where the army is, where the, is, is the much smaller Israeli army is. And then he sends his army after him. And when he gets there, they're not there. They move. Now, you can't defeat an army if you can't find it. So then he has his spies go out and find out where it's, it, where it's at, and they chase it down again. And as they chase it down, when they get there, it's not there. He can't find the army. You would think you could find an army, but he can't find it. 
Now, why can't he find it? Oh, he figures it out. There is a leak in my administration. You ever heard that phrase? There's a leak in my administration. Exactly what he says. One of you, he points out to his advisors, his counselors, one of you is tipping off the king of Israel so he knows where, when we're coming after him. And I don't know how the counselors do this. Now, by the way, Elisha is known to these guys. Remember, you go back to, I think it's chapter 4. Remember the story of Naaman, the Syrian captain who was healed of leprosy? Remember that story? That's just two chapters back. So they're aware of this Elisha guy. He's a pretty formidable character. Remember, he healed Naaman's leprosy without ever even meeting him. He didn't even have an audience with him. He just told him what to do, and he was healed. So anyway, the counselors say, Look, king, the prophet of God, not one of these phony prophets, but the real prophet, the prophet of God, he knows exactly where you are all the time. It's like he's sitting in your bedroom listening to you. And that's a great line, isn't it, in the Bible? It's as though he's in your bedroom. He's aware of you at all times. That's how the Israeli army is being tipped off. That's how they know. That's how they... You see, there is a God. There is only one God. There's a God in Israel. He has a prophet named Elisha, and he has access to the God of the universe who knows everything, gives him an advantage in warfare. He knows everything. And he is the one who's tipping off the Israeli army, and that's why they keep avoiding you. So that's what they tell Ben-Hadad. This is Ben-Hadad II. So now what does Ben-Hadad do? Verses 13 and 14. So he said, go and see where he is. Go find Elisha that I may send and get him. Now, by the way, just a comment here. How do you sneak up on someone who's in your bedroom listening to every move you make? I mean, you'd think the king would think about this. Have you ever heard the phrase, military intelligence is an oxymoron? Uh, these guys just don't, they, they don't know anything. And yet he thinks he's going he to be able to uh, find Elisha so I can get him. How are you going to get a guy who knows every move you make? How are you going to do that? But anyway, uh, and it's very typical, I think, of the enemies of God that I... Uh, that they never learn anything. Remember in, I always think about this, Luke, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, remember the guys lower the man down through the roof. They tear a hole in the roof of the house because there's huge crowds around Jesus. So they tear a hole in the roof and they lower a guy down through. You remember that story? And, I, and Jesus says, your sins be forgiven you. And all the Jewish religious leaders, the history professors and the seminary professors... And the clergy are all standing there. And they say to Jesus, How dare you say your sins be forgiven you? And Jesus says, Well, okay. Which is easier to say? Your sins be forgiven you? Or take up your bed and walk? And he turns to the guy, Take up your bed and walk. What did the guy do? After I don't know how many decades he'd been infirm, got up and walked out of the house. All right, now you're sitting there watching that. And what did they say? 
What did the Pharisees say? What would you say if you saw that? Uh, I don't think this Jesus guy is someone we ought to mess with. You know, I just don't think it's a good idea. Anybody who can do that is probably a piece of work. Let's just avoid him if we can. So what do they say? Let's, let's kill him. Let's figure out how to kill him. I would think that someone who says, take up your bed and walk, would be hard to kill. I would think. Somebody who knows your every move, like Elisha, would be, he'd be hard to find. So anyway, the king, in his infinite wisdom, does what? Notice what he does in verses 13 and 14. And it was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. Therefore, that's not the town in Alabama. That's a little town just north of uh, Jerusalem. So he said, Go and see where he is. And therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. All right. Now, of course, Elisha surely is going to know all this. But here's an interesting question. Why did he have to send the whole army to get one guy? Why do you got to send a whole army to get one guy? Because when the man is a man of God, he is going to be a piece of work. Uh, After 23 years at the University of Colorado, I was fired for my public testimony as a Christian. Now, it took a while to fire me. And when they announced they were going to fire me, some people found out about it. And I did 35 national interviews. Uh, how many of you are old enough to remember the Bill O'Reilly show? You remember that? I was on it. Bill O'Reilly interviewed me on his show. Joe Scarborough is still on TV. He interviewed me. Uh, and a bunch of other people did, too. I did a bunch of radio interviews, Bush's press secretary and, you know, some people like that. Uh, so it was a wild and crazy time. But I'd walk across the campus. I'd walk across the quad. And I would say, you know, just me, Phil Mitchell, I'm just a little bug. This university can squash me like a little bug. I said, but when I am filled with the Holy Spirit, I've got the whole university trying to figure out what to do with me. The whole university. The president met with me. The head of the Board of Regents met with me. Uh, The dean of my college met with me. Now, normally, I would not physically lay eyes on these people in my entire lifetime. Why did he have to send a whole army after one man? Because one man, when he's filled with the Holy Spirit, all of the armies of mankind cannot defeat him. How many armies have been sent after one man, Jesus Christ? How many academic communities have devoted themselves to defeating him? How many politicians? How many cultural institutions are right now in opposition to Jesus Christ and his followers. It won't do them a bit of good. Because when Jesus Christ gets in someone, I just recently finished a book, which I'm now assigning all of you to buy. Uh, You can find it's a short book. Kenan, did you hear that? It's a really short book. Kenan, you could read it. I wrote it for tribal people in the third world. So it's very short, very simple. It's not even 100 pages long. It's called Seven Ideas That Changed the World. And it says the most power, here's my argument. The seven most powerful ideas in the history of the human race uh, are these, these seven. They're the most powerful ideas of all time, and every one of them come from the Bible. Now, by the way, I have defended my thesis in front of great intellectuals who don't agree with me, the university. 
got seven, write it down, seven ideas that changed the world, go to Amazon, you can get it. Uh, and I think it will be, it's a, it'll really thrill you to think about how unbelievably powerful your faith is. Yes, I'll give you a minute to write that down. Seven ideas that changed the world. I'm trying to sell books. That's why I'm here. No. no, I'm doing that because I want you to see how great your God is. How powerful your Lord is. In 1949, the communists took over China. And then they launched the greatest effort any nation has undertaken to eradicate Christianity. It's the greatest effort ever made. The Romans did nothing by comparison to what the Chinese did starting in 1949. And they got the Christian population down, they thought, to maybe under a million by 1978. And in 1978... The revival began, and since 1978, at least 150 million Chinese have come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. I was standing in the middle of Guangzhou, China. It's one of the great cities of the world. It's bigger than New York City, on the south coast of China. I was standing in the middle of that city, and I said, I'm standing in the middle of the greatest revival in the history of mankind. The greatest national revival. So Mao Zedong and his gangsters tried to destroy the Christian faith. How'd it go? How'd that go? It's 150 million and counting. The most powerful. Christianity is always the most powerful force anywhere it is. We are the most One Jewish scholar said that what Jesus Christ did was unleash the most powerful cultural force in the history of mankind. That was a Jewish scholar who said that. Because it's clear as can be. I used to tell professors at Boulder, I said, every important idea in your head comes from Christianity. And I can prove it. And they knew I could. It made them very nervous. Every important idea in your head, you take the rankest infidel in Douglas, Converse County, every important idea in his brain comes from Christian culture, comes from the influence of Jesus Christ upon him. Even now, Black Lives Matter is at heart a movement inspired by Christianity. What does it say? All human beings are of equal worth. All human beings are equal worth. Where did they get that idea? From Charles Darwin? (laughs) That idea comes from Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his image. It's the most important statement made about the human race of all time. Genesis 1.27, most important statement of all time. And then... He makes the most important statement ever made about women. Male and female created he them. It's the most powerful and important statement ever made about women. I was lecturing at Front Range Community College in Denver. And I said, uh, what that verse is saying is that women have souls. Some guy in the back says, I know some who don't. (laughs) I know some who don't. But I don't think he was really making a theological statement. I think it was kind of personal bitterness. You know, that would be my guess. It's the most important statement ever made about women. I tell my female students, I said, you have the best lives any women have ever had on this planet. You have the best lives of women on this planet right now. And that's because Jesus Christ walked the earth. All of the armies that have set out to defeat him. How did a Razi Nazi come in? A kid at Boulder who was in ROTC. I said, and he was an atheist, but he had lunch with me every day. 
kind of to test me, you know, to kind of push and see how I could do. He came in one day and I said, Ian, I appreciate your service to our country. He was a Marine, went to Afghanistan later on. He said, I appreciate your service to our country. I said, but I want to, uh, I want to ask you, uh, no, I I want to make a statement. Jesus Christ is more powerful than all the armies that have ever marched. He's more powerful than all the armies that have ever marched. And he said, I agree with you. See, he knew, he's a smart kid, knew a lot about history. And he knew how powerful Christ was. He knew how powerful Jesus Christ was. So my brothers and sisters, I don't know how many Christians there are in Converse County. Only God knows. God's the only one who knows how many Christians there are at First Baptist. But I'll tell you this. However many they are, they're the ones who matter. They're the ones who matter. Because the future is with us. The Harvard faculty ceased being important more than 300 years ago. They think, oh, we're really important. No, you're not. You're living off mom and dad's income. You're living off the heritage of the Christian faith. You have nothing new to offer yourselves. We do. Daniel Dennett at Tufts University wrote an essay in the Wall Street Journal saying, Christianity is dying. Christianity is dying. And I just answered it. I wrote it in the comment section there in the journal. I said, "Uh, Dr. Dennett, you need to get out more. You need to get out more. Since 1917, 600 million Africans have come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Since 1917. I said, I'll bet you your custodians, who, of course, you never talk to, are in a Pentecostal Spanish-speaking church on Sunday lifting their arms and praising Jesus. The people right in front of your nose. I said, it's amazing. I know intellectuals really well. I've spent my whole life with them. And I agree with Thomas Sowell. Some things are so appallingly stupid, only intellectuals believe them. I, I just, it's amazing to me the things that intellectuals claim to believe. All right. Now, I've got three more points, but Keenan, they'll go fast. Second, that was my longest one. Uh, verse 15. And when the servant of the man of God... By the way, notice Elisha is the only name mentioned in this passage. Neither king nor the servant are named. Isn't that interesting? I just I find that an interesting thing. Uh, verse 15, And the servant of the man of God arose early and went out. There was an army surrounding the city and horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what should we do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Now, why did he say that? Because all he could see was the Syrian army. All he could see was the problem. Now, America's got problems right now, right? And if you want to, you can just look and see the problems and nothing else. And that's all the servant had eyes to see. And you've got guys having coffee at McDonald's or somewhere else this morning. Do they, do they drink coffee at McDonald's now? Or do they let you in? All right. They're sitting around talking, wringing their hands about America's going to hell. That's what they're talking about right now. Some of these old ranchers are in town doing that. Aren't they? Aren't they having those conversations? And you do, don't we tend to do that? Don't we tend to read the news? Don't, don't do that. But anyway, we read the news, wring our hands. We're like the servant. All we see is the Syrian army. All we see is the virus. All we see is rioting. All we see is these crazy leftists. 
trying to take over American institutions, and they always, even when they take them over, they kill them soon enough that they always fail. There's never been a successful left-wing revolution in history. There's never been one. They've tried it more than 30 times. They've never succeeded. They won't succeed this time. They never do. Why? Because they're built on a lie. But anyway, so the servant comes in. He goes out. He sees the army. He runs back in, and he says, Elisha, we're surrounded. We're surrounded. Look at that army. And so what does Elisha say? Well, look at verse 16. So Elisha answered, do not fear. Do not fear. There's more of us than there is of them. And I'm sure the servant said, are you nuts? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, stupid Syrian army. It's always been a Syrian army. Always will be one. It'll never be effective. Never has been. It's worthless right now. In fact, all of the Syrians who matter are trying to get out and move here and Europe and other places. Uh, Elisha says there's more of us than them. Remember in, in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus gives one of his really easy commands to obey. Aren't Jesus' commands easy? He says, don't be afraid of him who kills you. <laughs> oh, well, sure. Don't be afraid of him who kills you. What should you be afraid of? What does he say in Matthew 10, 28? Fear him who can cast soul and body into hell. That would be God. Don't be afraid of men, penny ante, pipsqueak men. Be afraid of him who can cast soul and body into hell. That's who you need to worry about. That's who you need to be afraid of. And Elijah just says, uh, there's more of us than them. Now, why did the servant not know that? Because he didn't have the right kind of eyes. And now we come to the heart of this message. Verse 17. You knew I'd get here eventually. In verse 17, and Elijah prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see thee. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, my brothers and sisters, this is my prayer for you this morning, and it's my prayer for myself. I'm not any better at it than you are. I pray... I pray, Natalie, that you will be able to see as God sees. That God will give you his eyes to see what's going on in the world. Give us divine eyes. You remember Jacob after he saw You remember the story of Jacob's ladder? You know, did you study that in Sunday school where Jacob has a dream? He goes to sleep, has his head on a rock. That would do it. And he sees angels going up and down on a ladder. Well, the interesting thing to me in that passage is the next morning when he woke up. You know what he said? It's been a verse that's really stuck with me. It's Genesis 28, 16. It says, surely the Lord was in this place, and I knew it not. Now, there were times in your life in the last week when the Lord was standing right there, and you didn't see him. Have you ever gotten in your, li- in your life, you look back, and God was there, and you just didn't see him? When I was a senior in college, I met a wonderful girl, wonderful Christian girl. She's from Riverton. And I knew it was God's will for me to marry her. Have you ever known absolutely something was God's will and it wasn't? Well, I knew it was God's will for me to marry that girl. Lucky her. I knew it was God's will 
for me to marry her. And she, yeah, and she dumped me. May 31st, 1969, at 2.30 in the afternoon. But I'm over it. It doesn't bother me now. Now, you don't know this. You'll meet her in second service. Uh, my wife is um, 10 years younger than me. But, of course, I hadn't met her at that time. But anyway, I remember saying to the Lord, I said, Lord, if Alice is not the girl for my life, who is? Now, would it have helped me for God to say, oh, Phil, the one of your dreams is in sixth grade in Denison Elementary School in Denver, Colorado. You see, God was there. God was there about to give me the greatest earthly blessing that I have ever experienced. My precious wife. And all I could do was wring my hands and whine because I couldn't see God. I couldn't see God. Now, aren't you glad that God doesn't pay any attention to your stupidity? Aren't you glad of that? And believe you me, we're incalculably stupid over and over again. Now, my prayer for you, Jack, my prayer for you, is that you will develop the ability to see as God sees. Wouldn't you love to have spiritual lens this morning and see the angels here in the service? There's, there are angels here. There's one right behind you, Jack. I can see him. Yeah. Um, he's just whispering in your ear. Aren't you lucky the preacher showed up? <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, give us, those, give us those eyes to see. Help us to see as God sees. God sees this little boy. And God knows what he's going to do with this little boy, what he's going to do with his life. Now, I know what it's like to be in your spot, Kenan. I know it's exactly what it's like. Usually I have something to write with. I used to play bulletin bingo. You know what that is? No. You divide the letters up into two teams. You pick five letters for one team, five letters for another, and you go for the bullet, through the bulletin and see which letter has the most. I called it bulletin bingo. Bull, or no, bulletin basketball. Bulletin basketball. That's when I learned that E is the most common letter in the English language. You don't, if you've got E on your team, you've got to give him an X and a Z, you know, to kind of balance things out. Um, but I sat at Grace Baptist Laramie just like this, squirming, put my glasses on and off, uh, hoping, when is this guy going to quit? Oh. Yeah, so I know exactly what that's like, son. But I'm telling you, God was in it. God was in the process of transforming me into somebody who has been useful for him. And if I have been useful for him, anybody in here can be. God can use you in a mighty way. We have a great God. We have a glorious God. My prayer, my brothers and sisters, for you is that you develop divine eyes. Godly ophthalmologist gives you the ability to see as he sees. Don't look out on this world. Vance Havner is one of my all-time favorite preachers. He's an old Southern Baptist. Any of you ever heard of him? Usually in our circles, we haven't heard of him, but he, he had an interesting statement. How many of you remember Walter Cronkite? Oh, yeah. Okay. Remember at the end of every, what did he say at the end of every newscast? And that's the way it is. Remember that? Vance Havner said, no, that's not the way it is. That's the way it seems. That's the way it seems. But the way it actually is is very different from what old Walter saw. But Walter didn't have divine eyes. And that's what I'm praying we develop, is that we have divine eyes. Natalie, try to see your little brother through the eyes of God. Now, that ain't going to be easy. 
Uh, you know, it ain't going to be easy. Yeah, I see you're, you're already lobbying there, boy. He's gonna, this is going to be leverage, isn't it? To use the rest of this day. All right. We need to develop divine eyes. Let me pray with you. And Father, I ask that you would give my brothers and sisters here in Douglas the ability to see as you see. To see as you see. And Lord God, help us not to miss it when you're right in front of us. We pray in your name. Amen.